0: Hey, Big Boxers, welcome to On The Shelf, a program that is dedicated to helping you get your products into a major big box retailer. Tim here with you once again, bringing you awesome information about how to get your products into big box retail. And today we're actually going to do that via Leah Kaplanis, who's going to actually tell you how she did it. So this is not somebody that's wanting to get their products into big box retail. Folks, she is doing it. She's done it and having actually a really, really great time in the process. She had an opportunity to be on the TV show, Billion Dollar Buyer, and she did really well. She's going to tell us all about that experience, and there's some nuggets of information in there, Big Boxers, that you are not going to want to miss because they're amazing, and her story is amazing, and her product is really showing that by how fast it's taking off and how people are really, I don't know, wrapping their arms around it and embracing it, because of the reason that she actually created it. And I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to steal her thunder. She's going to get into all of that with you. But one of the things I do want to say, one of the things I do want to mention, and you hear me talk about Jim Rohn a lot, and you know how I feel about Jim. If there's anybody out there that you should take the time to listen to his tapes and read his book, it's Jim Rohn, or his books. It's Jim Rohn. And one of the things that he could never understand in his life was if you wanted to do something, If you wanted to make something happen and there was somebody out there that already did it, they've already mastered it, they've already made it happen and they wrote a book, he just could not understand why you wouldn't read that book. So you want to do this, this other person already did it and they're killing it and they wrote a book about it telling you how to do it. It seems like a no-brainer and it always seemed like a no-brainer to him. And occasionally, we like to bring you opportunity To hear from people that are doing it, that have done it, that are having success in it, and kind of break down what makes that success happen for them. And I feel really lucky and privileged that Leah agreed to be on the show. She is super busy with all the things that are happening since she's been on the TV show Billion Dollar Buyer. And so we're grateful. We're grateful for her time and her willingness to share with you what she's learned, maybe what mistakes that she's made so that you don't also. Make those same mistakes. So I can't wait to bring you the full podcast. So let's not wait any longer. Let's get right into it. Hey, Leah, welcome to the program.
1: Hey, Tim. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, I'm super, you know, Joe has always done a really good job. Joe runs into so many people and he's always done a really good job of saying, hey, Tim, do you want to talk to this person? Do you want to talk to that person? But it's not super common for us to get people on the show that are entrepreneurs and that have had some success and were able to share that success with our big box listeners. So I'm very excited to talk to you about your social sparkling wine and and everything that goes with that. So I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us for a couple minutes.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So just so everybody knows, and we can kind of frame, create a frame of reference here, what is Uh, social sparkling wine?
1: So social sparkling wine, it's my attempt to create the most health conscious alcohol available today. So what we did was we looked at a concept as to what really healthy alcohol would be, and we created social from that concept. So we've got, basically we've got five flavors of organic, super locale, super low-sugar sparkling wines.
0: Okay, that sounds kind of, I mean, strange, right? I mean, healthy alcohol. That sounds a little counterintuitive. So I'm interested in. So I know, so if it's low sugar, what makes it healthy?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what we're seeing out there is just this raising of consciousness towards being healthier. And that's happened in so many categories, but it has kind of hit the alcohol world, maybe last, almost last, pretty close to still hasn't hit it. And so making things healthier, I would say, is it, the fact that it's organic certified that it is low calorie. It's one of the lowest calorie alcohols out there today. It's only one gram of sugar. And I've learned from my sort of holistic journey that I can tell you about in a bit that sugar is is really something that we're, we're learning to avoid. So it's got one gram of sugar. It is gluten and sulfite free. And it's made from superfood extracts. Stuff like superfoods are things that have been known to be really nutrient dense. So things, we have ingredients like organic hibiscus extract and organic ginger extract. So just the straight up juice from these really powerful foods.
0: Okay. And all these things combined into your drink. And and like you said, I totally want to know the story, but I'm still kind of, so all these cool things in the drink make it taste good and then also don't make you feel bad later or a volume of alcohol in your drinks is what? 4%
1: Four percent alcohol.
0: Okay. And that's equivalent to drinking something else like what? Like a wine like cooler. Domestic or, light beer. The domestic light beer. Okay. Do people find that after drinking your product they don't the next day they don't feel as bad? Or it's just a healthier way to socially consume alcohol and understand that you're not killing yourself with pesticides and whatnot at the same time?
1: Yeah. So what happened was we spoke with a whole bunch of women. That's who I'm kind of serving right now. And we asked them, what do you like about alcohol? What don't you like? And we found that in different occasions, they're drinking different alcohols and they like this about it, but they don't like that. This, they drink beer, but it makes them feel bloated because of potentially the gluten. Or they drink wine, but the next day they get a headache because of maybe the sulfites. Or they'll drink a, let's say if they were drinking a ready to drink something or others, there's just tons of sugar. Or in cocktails, there's tons of sugar. So they gain weight. Or that some things have really high alcohol, so they get too drunk. So it was really figuring out what are the pain points out there and just altering, altering these things to create a product that reduces those pain points. So you know, whether it's their experience drinking that night, not feeling bloated, not feeling drunk, not feeling like they just blew their diet and kind of feel guilty about not being as health conscious, or it's the next day that they don't have the big hangovers and so forth as well. Yes.
0: It definitely sounds like you're hitting all the pain points. And I dig it that you kind of went out there and tried to figure out what they're wanting, you know, because I get pitched a lot of products every single month. People come to me with stuff that they built in their garage or stuff that they've already had manufactured. And a lot of times it's out there searching oh, yes. for, a, I use the term searching for a problem to fix, right? So they had this thought and they built this product, but they didn't really ever even ask the question, is this something anybody really wants? And then what ends up happening, is they have to try to start to create some problems so that it can fix them and hopefully it will sell. So I think it's awesome that you went out and talked to people first to figure out what it was that they wanted. And it sounds like you went even a step further with the superfoods. And so not only are you not feeling bloated and not getting too drunk and not having a headache the next day, but you're actually putting some stuff into your body absorption wise that's going to make a a big impact. So that's cool. All right. So tell me now the beverage market that's not super in my wheelhouse, technically. I mean, I've done beverages before. I've also consulted on a bunch of alcoholic and wine for Costco. But it's not something I do all the time. And it's super competitive. And so what made you want to say, oh, I don't know. I'm going to go into one of the most competitive markets around beverages. I mean, so why did you pick that? What's the story? I, well, like, How does it go all the way back to your inception? And
1: Yeah, yeah, which I think is... Yeah, I guess we all have a story as to how we came up with our product and how we knew that it was needed out there. So my story is that when I was 26, I was, I was actually working for a real large food company and I ended up getting diagnosed with thyroid cancer and decided to heal holistically by going vegan and by doing lots of cleanses and not drinking alcohol for a couple of years. And I ended up feeling great and I was just getting just healthier and more vibrant every day throughout that journey. But what I noticed after a couple years is that I had lost something on the social side. I lost that feeling of connection that I got to experience when I was having a drink with a friend or going out dancing and just feeling really free and living in the moment. So I started drinking alcohol again, but I kind of had fresh eyes about it. And I saw that there was a lot of pros to it and value it adds, but that it also had these cons. So, it was really right after the very first time I drank again after a couple of years that I went into a liquor store and thought, what the heck am I going to drink that's kind of more health conscious? And I saw something that talked about lower calories, being all natural, and it looked like it was targeted towards women. So, I thought, oh, well, this is okay. They might understand my needs. So, I tried it out and just thought that given everything I had learned in my healing journey, that to make something really health conscious, something I would want to drink as well, it could be improved upon. So when I was looking in a liquor store, I actually did not see it as super competitive because I saw if you go to like a big liquor store, there's just thousands and thousands of products. And it turns out that, yes, that I don't know what percentage, it might be 60 or 70% of the industry is made up of, you know, I don't know, maybe the top 10 suppliers out there. But then there's thousands and thousands of small alcohol brands. And I'm like, if they're surviving, there's something to this. So what's neat in the food and beverage and alcohol world is that people nowadays, they're really looking for variety. Everyone wants exactly what they want. And they also are always wanting to try something new. So, you know, there is a space for these small niche brands that can really reach their target consumers.
0: Well, first, let me say congratulations on beating cancer. I'm intimately connected with people who struggle with that, having lost my first wife to that. So I applaud you and say congratulations on that. And I'm also very in tune to you on losing the social aspect of just hanging out with people if you decide to stop drinking alcohol. Because for me, I had a triglyceride anomaly Well, my whole family is high in triglycerides, but for some reason, my triglycerides shot up over 1,700, which they're supposed to be at 170, and they shut down my pancreas, which led to pancreatitis, and it was a whole scary thing over Christmas a couple of two, three years back, and I, too, decided that on my healing journey to get better that I would stop drinking alcohol just because it wasn't helping anything. (laughs) There was nothing about drinking it that was going to help me in my recovery. And people literally stopped inviting me to go places or hang out, or I wasn't invited to this party because it made them feel uncomfortable that I wasn't drinking. I wasn't uncomfortable. I'll come to your party. You know, I don't have to drink. it. It's all good. I can have Pellegrino. But it made them feel uncomfortable, like I was judging them. And I wasn't. But all of a sudden, my social calendar, my wife and I's social calendar kind of dwindled down. So I can understand where you were at and your interest in, in trying to create something that could kind of get you back into that. So that's interesting. And I'm understanding exactly where you were at, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, and I hear from people all the time, this expression, they say, I want to go out and be social, but I don't want to get too drunk. I don't want to feel bad the next day, but they want to go out and connect. And so part of, well, the reason we called it social was because of that is to bring back the emphasis on connecting with each other versus you know, going out and getting drunk, or even just the product, it's really about that connection that we're looking for. So,
0: so you had the idea, you thought that you can improve on maybe some things that were out there already. Did you go out and get a team of people? Or did you just kind of generate this on your own? And just how long did the process take from you going, Oh, my gosh, I think I can improve on this to actually having a finished product that you're sipping on and you're saying, Hey, I really nailed it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I actually did get a team pretty quickly. I was getting my MBA part time at University of Chicago and they had a business competition. And I had done that competition a couple years ago so I knew a bit of what it entailed and had a partner from that before. So he and I and his wife and his best friend, the four of us came together. And within a couple months, we actually had this new process to make our alcohol that this brewmaster had invented. And it's a man in his seventies and he hadn't commercialized it, didn't know if the process would work. So he signed it over for a couple percent of the company and he became our brewmaster. And so that all happened really, really fast. But to actually get to market and to have a finished product, it took me a year and a half. And that whole time, almost, I think I quit my job after about four or five months working on social part-time. So it it took yeah almost a year and a half or a year full time I guess without having a product.
0: Okay, perfect. And so when you say that you quit your job and believe me, when I talk to people out there, this is their biggest one of I guess I would say one of the biggest concerns that they have is when to make that jump, like leave my day job and do this full time. So I'm sure for everybody it's a little bit different, but for you where was it that, what had to happen for you to feel comfortable doing that?
1: So at the time, basically my day job, they were giving layoffs. And so I wanted one. I, You're uh,
0: the only one in there with your hand raised?
1: Yeah, yeah. And they actually came back and said no, but then they changed their mind and it's because they knew I wanted to leave. So, so that was there was some timing around that. There was also, we had gotten accepted into an accelerator program that was free office space during the day and some mentoring. So that was going to start, and that was like a $10,000 investment. But what I, I hear this question from people, and what I tell them is that one of the main things that you have to do, I believe, as an entrepreneur is to really learn to trust yourself and to trust your own guidance system and making that more tangible. Every person has a different, I guess you could say risk threshold, but for me, there's a different time when something feels logical. So. At the time, I had—I don't know—I probably had around 100k in my 100 thousand dollars in my 401k. I had a little bit of money from, you know, quitting the job and that sort of thing. I had this 10k coming in for the accelerator program. I didn't at all have a product or anything else, but to me, it summed up as this feels logical to me that I could do this for three six months. I could find another job, or I guess I had enough money to probably last me a couple years. And so it just felt logical. Now, looking back, as I said, we were a year away from launching. And so we didn't even have a formula or a sample. And we had a different name. And there was so much that we didn't have that other people might look at where I was at and think I was crazy. But for me, it just just felt right.
0: Well, I think you're right. It has to be that. And I guess how I answer that for people when they ask me is, is in a way kind of what you said. It's either going to feel right or it's not going to feel right. But when people, for instance, when people come off of Amazon to me and they want to go to brick and mortar retail, I always tell them, I say, listen, this is a commitment. When you want to take your product and move it from Amazon to brick and mortar, it's a commitment. We're not going to try it or see if we can do it or dip our toe in it because there's nothing about that that buyers want to hear. So you have to either commit to the whole process or don't do it. And I think that building your business and being an entrepreneur and creating a product, at some point, you have to, in your own mind, cross over that part that says, I'm going to do this. It's not an idea anymore or a concept. It's I'm committed to it. And then once you mentally are committed, then that time frame of when you're going to actually jump on with both feet becomes more and more clear. And so it sounds to me like, you were or had that tipping moment already, this was something that you absolutely wanted to do. And we're in with both feet. So when all those things started to line up, it just made sense. But still, with that said, entrepreneurship is hard. And a lot of people still balk at it. Entrepreneurs are a different breed. We're not afraid to lose everything, I guess, and for the opportunity to make a difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is something when you're working on your own thing and you're working on something you believe in that you just sort of, you get the energy to work all day and work all night when needed. And I do think that entrepreneurs are a group of people that like working so much, maybe more than they enjoy hanging out, sometimes more than they even enjoy being with their families. Because there's only so many hours in a day, and I think it'd be amazing if someone could just lead like a perfect, balanced life when they are starting something, but I can't say that is what I've seen very much or that I did. So it's hard. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy, but it's super fun.
0: There's no... I can say with definite honesty that there's no perfect balance. And I can also say that a lot of times I'll hear, oh, you know, if I could just do this, then things will settle down a little bit. There's no settling down. The better your product does, the work is more, it's not less. Mm -hmm. It does allow you maybe to hire some people and to start delegating some things. But in the end, you have to have, I guess what I find that entrepreneurs have is a tremendous amount of passion. And it's the passion to me that drives, it sounds like it's passion for what you're doing that's driving you, that makes you want to, when you work all night, it doesn't seem like a big deal because it's not somebody just saying, "Hey, do this, you're not working for somebody, and, and at the end of the day, you still make your thirty five thousand dollars a year, and the person you're working for is making millions. You have a passion for something, and at the end, you're going to benefit from it. and so I think that that's kind of a can be a driving force.
1: Yeah, I think it can make all the difference, and if you're working, let's just say you're working eight hours a day. If you're doing something that doesn't really excite you and doesn't feel like you're making a difference in the world, making it better. That can, for me, that just can have a can be a big downer. Life's only so long, so it's really important to enjoy what you do. I believe.
0: I'm 100% in agreement. Let's talk about something. I know that you were on a billion dollar buyer. We're going to get to that in just a minute, but I want to talk a little bit about sales because I looked at when Joe sent your stuff over. I, I looked at your website, and you're in quite a few retailers, and so I imagine that you've been in your share already of buyer pitch meetings. Am I right about that?
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: Okay, and so who was your first decent sale to? Who was the first person who said, yes, I'm going to go with this?
1: So the very first grocery retailer that said yes was a chain called Mariano's in Illinois. And they were, it's a large, well, it's about 30, 40 stores. They've been bought by Kroger now, but their focus was on local. They were really open to, I guess, local products. And they are also more of an upscale, health-conscious chain. Mm-hmm. yeah, they were the first ones to jump in. And then after that, I got into Publix, which oh, wow. was my, our biggest win and are still our biggest customer. It's like 1100 awesome. stores in the Southeast.
0: Well, right. I'm in Florida. So I've been down there to, I shop at Publix every day. Mm-hmm. So very familiar yeah. with them. And their buying situation I find to be totally different than, you, know, you can go online and find out who the buyers are and you send in a request for a meeting and It's not hard to, in the realm of calling up buyers and trying to get a meeting, public's not that hard actually to get a meeting. It's still hard for them to say yes, but their whole process, I thought, because I've been down there several times with several different products, and anytime I've sent them something, they've always granted me a meeting, but it's all done through email. I've never been able to, I've never had success calling the buyer on the phone saying, hey, will you meet with me? They always say, when I get them on the phone, they always say, yeah, send me the meeting request and go through the process. And it's always been super, Fairly easy. Did you find that or?
1: Well, the way it happened for me was in the alcohol world, there's distributors. Right. So I had spoken with a distributor and they actually pitched that one for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they had a meeting and the category social was just part of this new category that they were creating at the time. So it was just like perfect timing kind of thing. So they actually handled that one.
0: Okay. And so, buyer meeting wise, if I were Mm -hmm. to say, if you're in a buyer room and you're say, face-to-face with a buyer, definitely do what?
1: Definitely tell your story. Yeah, definitely tell your story. Show your passion. Bring it to life for them. Who is the person using this? What is what is going on for them? How does this make things better? And talking about the big picture with them. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they see so many things. And some things, it's like you can look at it and you can say, this product doesn't really have the TLC or the detail orientation, it's just not as cared for, it's not as beautiful, it's not as thought out. Because all that stuff really takes focus and time and energy to scrutinize over and make your product the best that you can make it. It's like we're always improving. But yeah, I mean, I think showing your passion for it and telling your story, and that's what's going to bring it to life. Even if your packaging isn't as great, at least they'll get what you're doing and what you're all about.
0: Right. Well, big boxers, make sure that you write that down because I think that that is so important. And so often people don't have or haven't curated their story yet. Everybody has their why or generally, but curate that into a story, a passion, just like Leah said, and paint the big picture of who's going to buy this and who are they and what do they want? And you couldn't have picked a better thing to say. Definitely in a buyer meeting, tell your story. So- not that oh. if you said something that I totally disagreed with, I would be like, Leah, I just totally disagree with
1: that. <laughs> I may test you out on that one. We'll okay. see if I say something crazy.
0: <laughs> hey, Big Boxers. Just a quick announcement from TLB Consulting. Are you looking to scale your business this year? Are you looking to get your products on the shelf of a retailer this year? Well, guess what? Booking a coaching call with me has never been easier. I know based on the past 10 years of working with clients that it can be difficult to be a solopreneur. It can be difficult to scale your business into territory that you've never been to. That's why I have opened up more slots this year than I've ever done before. One of my goals this year is to work with more clients, more solopreneurs, more big boxers looking to get their products into retail than ever before. I want to work directly with you and share my experiences over the last 25 years of getting products into retail. I want to share those experiences with you. I want to talk to you from a place of somebody who's been there, and I want to help you get to where I've gone. Like I said, it's never been easier. All you have to do is go to TLBConsulting.com, click on Consulting, and then choose the time or the bundle that you want and get it scheduled. Let's kick off 2020 with a bang. Let's get you the information that you need. I'm looking forward to meeting you. (laughs) All right. So in contrast to that, in a buyer meeting, never do
1: argue. I wouldn't argue very much. People don't enjoy that.
0: Just in general.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's that's not very fun. And the thing is, they may not get it the first time, but it's a small world. And they may be a later adopter to your product. They may need to see the innovator down the street jump on board first. And it may be six months, a year, two years later that they come on. But It's important to make sure that the interaction is pleasant because, at the end of the day, we're all dealing with people. And if someone had an amazing product that a retailer really wanted, if they didn't like the people that they were dealing with and they really didn't need to pick it up because the brand, like the presence, wasn't huge enough yet or whatever, they may not work with you. Having them feel good about you and knowing that they can work with you and that you are a good partner and you're cooperative and you're smart, all of that, I mean, that goes a long way. So if it gets too confrontational, I'd say, hey, you know, I I understand. I really appreciate your time and it's all right. I could circle back with you later as we grow.
0: Yeah, well, see, again, here, I'm not going to argue with you. I think people just want to do business with people they like. I mean, I've had clients before that I just, every time I talk to them, we argue. And I'm like, you don't need to pay me for me to give you advice so that you can tell me that you don't want that advice or you don't like it or then we shouldn't just not work together. And I think that in any interaction, buyer or or anything, just be nice and have a good experience, whether they're tearing your product apart or not. It's all a learning experience for you. And there's something in what they're saying that you can take away from and do better the next time. And have you ever found yourself like on the brink of arguing and then you have to suck it back in?
1: Oh, yes, yes. And actually, I have argued and that's how I know this lesson. There's been some customers out there who very bluntly weren't really interested. And some of them I've argued with and it hasn't worked. I still am not in their stores. It wasn't even necessarily that we argued so much as we just really weren't feeling each other. They may have been having a bad day. I may have just looked like their ex-girlfriend. You just never know. But it just wasn't a good interaction. And we're still not in some of those stores. And then there's other people who really gave me a super hard time, but I just rolled with it and respected them and didn't take it personally. And sometimes those people end up being your biggest supporters because they're tough nuts to crack. But once you do, then they're all in. So
0: yeah. And along with not arguing, I always tell my clients and my listeners, just don't get rattled. Don't let Mm -hmm. anything rattle you. And the way I tell it to them is pretend like you have 10 deals that you're getting to after this meeting. Like there's 10 more deals waiting for you after this meeting. And if that were really true, you would be relaxed. And if this person said no, you'd be like, okay, yeah, no worries. Well, you know, can I follow back up with you? Because technically I have 10 more deals waiting for me that I'm meeting with. And it's just a mindset. Ages ago, there was that when you're talking in a group of people, think about everybody being in their underwear. I just tell my clients, just pretend like you have 10 deals waiting for you And act like that because you're not going to get anywhere, like you said, being argumentative and you never know what they're dealing with. Now, with that said, I definitely will, if somebody has a question or issue or they maybe think something that's incorrect, definitely Mm -hmm. will stand up and say, hey, yeah, that's not exactly right, but not in an argumentative way. And like I said, like you said, actually, people just want to do business with people they like. Uh, And buyers are no different because in the end, it's just a conversation. Right. You're either going to get it or you're not. And if you don't get it, you're going to get it later.
1: Mm Yeah.
0: All right. So I know big boxers, you probably are in the car cooking dinner or whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to this, but you got to take a minute to remember these two key pieces of advice. One, tell your story. Paint a picture. Make sure they know who you are and who your customer is and how you came to that and why you're doing what you're doing and why it's important to you. And then secondly, don't argue. Okay, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to burn a bridge when you're in the room with Costco buyer and they say something, don't argue, okay? Because we all know that Costco buyers are single buyers that they don't change that often. I mean, I've known buyers that have been in position for 10 years. So it's not like some other place where they're going to be gone in a year and a half and you could start again with somebody else. If you piss off a buyer at Costco, you could be down for 10 years. So don't argue. Sage advice, Leah.
1: <laughs> Thank
0: you. So when you sit back and close your eyes, the biggest achievement,
1: the biggest thing that has affected my business right now is being on the television show. So that aired January 10th, National TV, and it told the story. And since then, we've had so many customers reach out, retailers, restaurants, media. So just getting some media really has taken us to this whole nother level that I would say we're still getting ready for. Showing up and kind of presenting ourselves for that show was an accumulation of who we had been for the last couple of years, of what we had built the brand to be, of what we thought we were. Just all of that, just the way that we were able to show up and be on TV and share that because of the work we had done to build the brand so far and to know who we are and all of that, it turned that experience into a really successful one for us.
0: All right. Well, that's a good segue to jump into Billion Dollar Buyer. So you were on there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was quite the adventure.
0: Yeah, tell us a little bit about being on a TV show and what the whole experience was like.
1: Yeah, so what's neat about it is the people who do it, they're pros. So they come in, they tell you when it will be there or when to be ready. They pretty much kind of just ask you a bunch of questions and, and really coach you through it. So it ends up you get through it and it's not as hard as you think.
0: When you see it on TV, it seems like the whole thing is basically 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but there's a lot more to it than that, right?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of getting up early in the morning. We got our hair and makeup done. So it was kind of like 6 a.m. days. And then we had the whole office. We decorated the office. We actually had an outdoor area that we did tons of landscaping on. I mean, the weekend before. So there was just a ton of getting ready for it. And then just making sure everything was ready in case he just asked a random question, you know, I'd like to see this or I'd like to see that and just thinking ahead. So it's pretty intensive as far as how you need to prepare, but once they're there, essentially they ask you questions, you just act natural, and it really was less scripted than people think. But we shot for probably about five days with them for for 20 minutes of footage.
0: Wow, five days. When you finally saw the final cut of the entire show, were you just like, wow, I wish they would have put this in or put that in? Was there just some really good stuff that just not get, make it? They always say, oh, it ended up on the cutting room floor.
1: Yeah. I mean, they mostly ended up taking footage from two of the five days or whatever. There were some scenes that they totally didn't take anything from, just completely dropped. There was a couple of scenes that I wish they would have dropped. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, in the moment, there was a part where it got pretty heated, sort of, where he just was sort of mad at us because our distributor didn't do a great job and whatnot. And I was really worried that I was going to be super embarrassed when that hit the screen. I was sure that they would just make me look awful on there, that they had that opportunity, but they actually didn't end up doing that. They ended up, they showed that part, but they were really quite kind about it, so...
0: Wow. Well, kind doesn't make for good TV, right? Normally they go (laughs) for the jugular there, right? If there's a mistake to be had, then they're going to go for it. So when you're talking about him, big boxers out there that have never seen Billion Dollar Buyer, this is who you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So Tillman Fertita, he's the billionaire. He owns Landry's, which is about 500 restaurants, casinos, He just bought the Houston Rockets. So what he does is he meets with startups, finds out all about them, does some tests in some of his restaurants or casinos and places really large orders. And it's a feel good show. I mean, it's, they're really, they want him to place the order. He wants to place the order. It's just a fantastic show. So highly recommend people reaching out and applying for that.
0: How often does, now I watched uh, in preparation for speaking to you, and honestly, I had never seen the Billion Dollar Buyer. So I watched a bunch of, yes, teasers on YouTube. And the teasers kind of ran the gamut of uh, him yelling at people and doing deals and being disappointed. And you had mentioned that he was upset about something that your distributor, like what kind of thing would upset him or make him potentially not want to do a deal? Like in the five days that you guys we're shooting, like what's the thing that would upset him?
1: Mainly, he just needs to have the product high enough quality. It needs to get there on time. You need to be able to produce enough of it for national rollout. So he just needs to be sure that if he goes into business with you, that you're going to have the product and it's going to be good. Because if he goes through the whole expense of changing over his menus and executing with his team, which we've done since then. It's a lot of moving pieces to go national with a big restaurant group. We're talking like dozens of people to work with in different states. Just there's so many moving pieces. So he needs to see that you're super buttoned up, that well organized, that you're ready to scale, that you can meet deadlines and have a sense of urgency.
0: So that's a key piece right there. So you have to be ready, right? So big boxers, make note of that. You have to be ready. I know I saw, saw a snippet where he was asking, like, machine gun questions at this guy, and the guy just had no... I don't know whether he clammed up and he really knew the answers, but he just clammed up and was shell-shocked, or he didn't know the answers, but either way, he was just a statue. And you could just see the look on Tillman's face. He's like, what? What need for me to hear the answer? And so I imagine you also have to be pretty prepared, right? Because you don't know what he's going to ask you, or do you?
1: No, you don't at all. But he basically just asks you all of the business stuff. What was your sales? What were your sales the year before? How many stores are you in? How many restaurants are you in? What are you planning to do this year? Your flavors, the quality what does your team look like? They really wanted us to hire an operations person. So we've actually hired an operations person that's starting in a week. And then as soon as they said things that we should do, we got back to them like the next day or the following day with, hey, here's what you said we should do. Here's what we're going to do.
0: And this is all during when the show is still shooting?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: (laughs) so you're doing the show during the day and then at night you're scrambling to get the things done that you need to get done?
1: Exactly. At night, I was like creating a job description, posting it on LinkedIn. (laughs) I brought next day, I brought him resumes of, or two days later, resumes of 15 resumes that had come in that we had screened. I mean, it's an intense time for sure.
0: So he's not just looking at your product. He's looking at your ability as a business owner and as a leader to be able to, hey, if I throw you this huge, ginormous order, you're going to need to be able to handle it. So here, I recommend you need to do this or you might need to do this. And then I guess it's up to you whether you want to make those quick changes in order to make things happen.
1: Absolutely. Yep. you can sleep later.
0: That's right. Sleep is always going to be there. So the other thing that's interesting to me, and, and I've talked to some people that have been on Dragon's Den and then also on Shark Tank. One thing I found consistent between both is, is that even if you get a deal on TV, that doesn't mean you get a deal there's still all kinds of vetting. And I talked to two people that were on Dragon's Den that got it on the show. And then the deal fell apart later. I've talked to a couple of people that have been in Shark Tank, and then the deal fell apart later. And when viewers see it, they think, oh, my gosh, they got a deal. But I guess online, right? I mean, on TV, you can fudge your numbers, you can say things that aren't true. And so in the end, when you have to submit all the paperwork or whatever, if it's not as you stated it was. But here, it looks like he said he was going to purchase it. Now you guys are moving forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But since then, I hired someone specifically to manage the business for him, went and met with his team, all of his beverage managers for all of his concepts, told them about the product. And then she and I have been working with those individual beverage managers to figure out how to integrate social into their concept. And some of them can integrate now, some can integrate in a few months. So there's still a lot of sales activities that take place after, even though we remind them that they have $300,000 commitment now it's about how do we actually put that on the menu and get them the graphics and they actually want some different packaging just for their concepts and different point of sale materials and so there's just ton that goes into actually executing and then holding them accountable and showing them hey here's where we're at for this month it looks like with what we have planned for the year we're going to come in at 200,000 so we really need to figure out another hundred thousand dollars worth of planning or programming right now so that we can all meet this commitment.
0: That sounds weird because from a layman's thought, oh, hey, you sold a canned alcoholic beverage to a big restaurant chain or a couple of restaurant chain. We ship our cans in there and then they sell it like a bottle of beer or anything else. But there's way more to it.
1: Yeah, because if you just put something on a menu, social sparkling wine by the glass on a menu that has 100 wines, you're probably not going to do $300,000 worth of business in a year. So we have to work with a beverage manager who we can say, hey, how about using it in this cocktail or over here? How about using it on tap or over here? Let's do ice bins by the pool at the casinos or let's do it in a little split bottle for higher end places. So it, it can get into a place, but getting it actually sold, you have to really have a big call out on the menu or have it on tap or POS on the bar so people can see it. There's a lot to think about.
0: I always tell my clients that I know it seems daunting, but actually getting into the retailer is the overall easy part. It's the getting your product to sell through and getting a reorder. That's the really hard part. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're naming off all these things that we could do this. I'm like, yeah, let's do it all. (laughs) Let's do it all. Let's get on tap. Can your product be sold on tap?
1: Yeah. Yep. We sell social on tap.
0: That just sounds dangerous. (laughs)
1: yeah well yeah offering products in different formats for different customers definitely opens up doors as far as just getting placements but it's operationally you have to be really organized to manage all of that inventory manage the different packaging so it's a good thing to do if you can do it but it's like you got to be ready to be super organized
0: yeah and i can see the need a hundred percent to hire one person to manage that account i mean at some point you start doing big business with Costco or whatever, a lot of times that's a full time job. Just dealing with that one account and making sure everything goes smooth. Because I always tell people there's really only two things that can get you kicked out of Costco. One is if your product goes bad, meaning a lot of times people, not a lot of times, but occasionally people change the aspect of their product without notifying anybody. Maybe they'll use a cheaper material or whatever. And all of a sudden that product starts having huge returns. So you know, your product that goes bad or starts getting huge returns, that's one thing. And then your ability to commit and manage your commitment to the retailer in as far as logistics and actually delivering your product is the second thing that can get you kicked out if you're not good at it. And sometimes trying to have different people manage all of that, things can cross wires. And so sometimes for big accounts that mean a lot to you, one person just to handle that is worth it.
1: Oh yeah. And I mean, even if it wasn't three hundred thousand dollars, even if it just covered one person's salary and they and you broke even. That person now is also available to, for all these other opportunities coming in. I mean, we had, after this Landers thing, we got contacted by Levy, which does a bunch of almost 200 stadiums in the country. And so they would like to do a national partnership as well. So it seems that it's just once you have one big break, it's a small world and people start hearing about it and it just starts flowing in.
0: Something to do with being on TV as well. Who knows? Yeah. All right. Well, as far as Million Dollar Baby and that experience, I'm sure I taught you a ton. Can you break it down to just like maybe the top two things that you personally experienced or tucked away? Wow, with a huge learning experience and I learned these two things. What, what do you think that that would be?
1: You know, one, I would say that hard work pays off if just by putting in the time and really having a good foundation with it and having the product innovation and having the passion behind it and the story. Eventually, people do recognize that people that know they do see that. So it definitely pays off. You know, this is, it's a small world and you got to just be yourself. And I love that the show gave me an opportunity to share my story and be myself. And that just gave me the confidence to feel safe sharing that story with a lot of other people and having fun with it. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm super excited over here just listening to you talk. I'm all excited for all the cool things that are going to happen and all the great things that are in store for you. So congratulations on that.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's really fun to do these kinds of shows and to connect with people out there going through the same stuff and it's a wild ride, but it's lots of fun.
0: The last question I generally ask all the guests on my show, it's really a self-serving question because I struggle with this mightily. And that is as a new entrepreneur and, and maybe even through your whole career, but What do you use to keep it all together? So you have information coming from multiple retailers and this and that, and it's all coming at you on email and a multitude of different ways. How do you keep yourself organized?
1: So two things. One, I use Google and I use the archive feature and I treat my inbox like a to-do list. So my goal before I leave for the day to get it down to like 10 or less emails and so it took a while to get there. I mean, I'm sure at one point I had like six, seven hundred or something. And I don't know maybe it was a couple of years ago. But since then, I've just really believed in not having a lot of emails in my inbox so that I can leave for the day. Feel like it's feeling like there's not too much to do for a while. I even had it down to like zero or two emails. So I, my t- challenge for the team is to have 20 emails or less by the time they leave for the day. So that's one. And I just use the archive function in Gmail. A lot of people don't know about it. That way you don't have to file anything. You can just click it, archive it, and then you can search for it by the person that emailed or content. So that saves a step there. And then the second thing is in our shared drive, I use folders a lot. And I just got really clear on our folder system and make sure that when anyone's working on anything, that they, before they leave for the day, that it goes online and it's in that folder. And so when I have new people start, I just say, hey, go to this folder, go through every single thing that's in there. And they learn so much about their position just by doing that.
0: So a couple of clarifying, because I also use Google Apps. And so what you're saying is in your email, if you actually get an email, you read it, you act on it, you complete it, whatever it is that you need to do. You don't just leave it in your email, in your inbox, you actually archive it so that it takes it out of your inbox and doesn't create clutter. And then you can always just go to your archive folder right later and search for something if you need to. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. So that's email, that's information coming at you. But what about like stuff that you create for yourself to move your business forward, to-dos and stuff and goals and this and that? How do you integrate that into your system?
1: Yeah. So I send myself an email with a task. So if there's something that I really need to do and I need to remember to do it, then I just email myself, like email this person or send this thing to this person. So yeah, so I really keep my email like it's a to-do list. And then each day what I do is we come in and we talk about what are our top priorities for the day. And I ask my team this, what are your top three or five things that have to get done today? And get in the habit of, okay, this is the number one. This has to get done first. This has to get done second and just doing them, everyone just peacefully kind of trying to do the most important first. And if you get two or three big things done, that's how I find that I can really do maybe three to five big things. And then the rest is just like email communication on short things, back and forth, small things. So as long as you get those, focus on those big things, I think that's what makes me feel good when I leave.
0: Okay. And because I'm super interested in what you're saying, I'm going to ask one more question. So if you have something that you need to do But you're not going to get to it today, but you don't want to have it fall through the cracks. You still send yourself an email and then you do what with it?
1: Well, I just add it to my to-do list for each day when I come in. Actually, I write my to-do list, like five things that I need to do that day. So sometimes those are in an email already, you know, reminding me to do it. Or sometimes it's just a project I know I need to do. But most of the time, whenever I get through those three to five things, I've now cleared out a big chunk of my emails.
0: Well, thanks for the cook class. Here I am. I'm like, okay, I'm going to write this down. If you were to ask my wife, she would say, I have more than enough apps and devices and everything to get it all straight. But I'm always like looking for that silver bullet. Like what's the one thing that's really going to click with the way my brain works and make it happen? And I guess what I've come up with is there is no silver bullet. It's just picking a routine and actually just sticking to it. But I'm always still interested. I mean, because the, the other day I interviewed somebody and they just write it all down on everything they write down on an Excel spreadsheet and they give it a date and then they sort that sheet every day. So every day they sort it closest date to furthest and then they start knocking off the stuff on. But everything goes into it. I mean, this was a guy, he's uh, old school, but and then I, um, I don't know if you've heard of the show Make 48. Mm. It's on PBS that these guys have created this show where you can apply to be on the show with a team like four people. And then they basically go to a retailer and ask that retailer, you know, what problem do you want solved? They come back and they give to these three teams, you need to create a product that will solve this problem. And then they have 48 hours to actually create a retail product. And of course, they have people standing by and 3D printers and everything so they can do models and whatnot. But he, the guy that started this, He still uses just like an old school, like from Office Depot, just flimsy calendar. So it's always interesting. Everybody does something a little bit different as to how they keep it all straight. But like I said, I guess the key is maintaining what you do and being consistent so that you don't lose track of things. So I appreciate that. Any last thoughts? Any last piece of advice for the big boxers out there that either have a product idea or are in the product in the process of actually realizing that idea or maybe actually have a product and they're trying to get it out there to buyers uh, any last piece of advice
1: So I would just let them know that the world needs what they have to offer and every single brand started out with someone saying this is a product that needs to exist so if you take baby steps if you do a few things at a time each day you're going to get to where you have something tangible that can provide value. Yeah, so it's a up-and-down experience. That's just how it is for everyone. But if you hang in there, it, it does get better. It does definitely get better. So right, wish guys. them all the best of luck. Yeah.
0: yeah, key piece of advice. Just hang in there. See it through. Well, Leah, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time and attention and what you're doing. Best of luck, your product. I know you guys are, you're already doing awesome. So I anticipate continued tremendous success for you. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much. You have a great day.
0: You too. Hey, big boxers. We're back after closing out our conversation with Leah. I hope that you guys found that as inspiring as I did. It was a boatload of information, a lot of great nuggets of wisdom in there. And I'm super grateful Talia for taking the time out of her busy schedule to spend some time with us. I know I took a bunch of notes and I hope that you guys did also. So hopefully this year, we're going to be bringing you more and more success stories so that you guys can begin to learn and formulate some strategies of your own to help catapult you into retail. Guys, if you're liking the podcast, if you're enjoying the podcast, if it's providing you information that's helpful in your journey, please let us know. Reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter at TLB Consult. You can, of course, find us on Facebook at TLB Consulting. You can come and join our closed Facebook group, which is called On the Shelf Now. All you have to do is go to Facebook and type in On the Shelf Now and hit join so you can join the conversation and you might meet people in there that are doing what you're doing and you can collaborate with those people. That's what that's for. So don't miss out on that. You can always reach out to us via email through our website, TLBConsulting.com. And come on, give us a review. Let us know what you're thinking. Send us some questions. What are you guys struggling with? What do you guys want to talk about? What would you like to hear about? Bottom line, as you know, I've already told you in past podcasts starting in 2018, we need to up the communication. We want to interact with you guys more than we have been. And so we have some tools that are going to be coming your way to be able to help do that. But in the meantime, you can simply reach out. You can go on our podcast website and leave some comments and let us know how we're doing. We appreciate you. We appreciate you listening. And until next time, guys, we look forward to seeing your products on the shelf.